Brilliant. Was well, wonderful uh, to worship together, and um, I'm so pleased uh, to have the opportunity to bring God's word to you. Uh, my name's Mark. I'm the pastor here at Hope Church, and uh, as Jen said, uh, you are very, very welcome if it's your first time uh, amongst us. Um, we're in a preaching series um, entitled Flipped, which is in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount. I believe, is one of Jesus' best-known teachings and yet least understood. And in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus flips everything that we know about culture, about the way of the world, about what society tells us. Jesus flips it on its head. And just by way of introduction, the Sermon on the Mount really gives us a, a picture, a painting, a portrait of what a disciple of Jesus looks like. You say, what? what does a Christian look like in 2021? We read the Sermon on the Mount. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus himself lived out the teachings that he taught on the mountainside in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, this is week four of our series. Uh, we started by looking at the Beatitudes over the first couple of weeks. And then last week, Alex preached on salt and light. And I want you to think really that the Beatitudes and the salt and light are really your starters. They were the starters of the meal. Now we get to the main course. We get to the kind of the steak. We get to the the, the beautiful kind of lamb chop or making you hungry before, before lunchtime. But we get to the main course of the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to start by reading Matthew chapter 5 and verses 17 to 18. But we're going to make our way through most of chapter 5. We're going to start Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to read verses 17 to 18. Do not think, this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is a, a new era. A new era has arrived. And Jesus is, is saying to the crowds that he's not abolishing the Old Testament, the law that has come before him. Rather, he is fulfilling everything that has gone before. Just to give you a little bit of context, you see, around this time, even as Jesus was just beginning his ministry, there was a bit of controversy around Jesus because he healed people on the Sabbath. And he broke corn off the field and fed his disciples. And the teaching that Jesus taught, even in the early few weeks of his ministry, didn't fit to the boxes that the scribes and the Pharisees put life into. I mean, today, I want you to think about the fact that often people will think about the Bible and they'll say, well, the Bible is split in two. You've got the Old Testament and you've got the New Testament. And the things in the Old Testament are different to the New Testament. Are they the same? Isn't it a, a different God? But Jesus, you see, is coming here and he's saying something really important. He's saying that Jesus has come, that he has come to bring continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is the one who fulfills the law 
And he is the one who fulfills the prophets and the prophecies of old. The verb to fulfill translates as filling up. So basically what it means was where there was all the gaps, where everything needed to be done, Jesus comes and fulfills every single gap and every single prophecy. I mean, if you look at the law, the Old Testament law was fulfilled by Jesus. The law or the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. And Jesus came to fulfill every part of the Torah. The Torah was the revealed instructions of God, man, and salvation, which Jesus fulfilled. Uh, a, a actual professor, Professor Ryle said, the Old Testament is the gospel in bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flow. You see, the moral law of God was fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. All the statues of the law, Jesus kept. The standard of the law, Jesus kept without sin. Jesus was the only human being who kept each one of the Ten Commandments. He was the first and the last man in history to obey the law and fulfill every detail. Pilate, when he was tried, when Jesus was tried, Pilate said of Jesus, the Roman governor Pilate in the Easter story, I find no fault in this man. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 says, we do not have a high priest who does not sympathize with our weakness. We have one who was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. He did not abolish it. He fulfilled it. And the prophecies of the Old Testament were all fulfilled in Jesus. You see, much of the Old Testament looks forward to the day of the coming Messiah. It looked forward to the day of the one that Jesus would send to redeem Israel. And Jesus comes along and says, I have come. He's saying that I am the one who is the answer to all of these prophecies, to all of the speaking that the Old Testament had about the one to come. In Matthew, again and again, Matthew 1, verse 22, Matthew 2, 25, Matthew 4, 14, it says, all this took place to fulfill. It's all over the Christmas story. It's all throughout Jesus' miracles. It's all over the Easter story that Jesus came to fulfill the prophecies that had been predicted hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Isaiah 7.14, that Jesus would be born of a virgin, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, prophesied 700 years before it took place. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, which we see displayed at Easter, was all fulfilled by Jesus. Scholars believe, and we haven't got time to go through this, but you can look it up and go through it. Scholars believe that over 300 prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus' life, in his birth, in his ministry, in his death, and in his resurrection. And it's interesting, when Jesus died on the cross, when he died there on that cross on Good Friday, all of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus' sacrifice. And when Jesus 
breathed his last, he said, it is finished. His mission was accomplished. The curtain was torn in two because the Old Testament prophecies, ceremonial law, priesthood was all now no longer needed. Jesus had fulfilled it to the letter and to the dots. Everything fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Mission accomplished. Just to give you two words to kind of sum this up, two words to sum up what Jesus does when he he fulfills the law and the prophets. The first one is substitution. It's from the world of football. Okay, substitution. You see, the law required perfect obedience, which we could not do. But we have a substitute whose name is Jesus. When we're on the field of play and we cannot do what is expected of us and we mess up left, right, and center, we can hold up the substitute number and Jesus will come on in our place and take our place and do what we cannot do. That's the first word, substitution. The second one, satisfaction. You see, the blood of Jesus satisfy the divine justice of God. No one else could satisfy the divine justice of God except Jesus, who lived the perfect life. Jesus fulfilled the law. He paid the price. You see, Moses gave the law in Exodus, but he could not fulfill it. David loved the law, but he could not fulfill it. Jesus then came to fulfill and complete the law to every dot and every iota. Jesus is the missing piece in the jigsaw puzzle. Jesus is the one who completes what we cannot do. He fills the void. He is the answer to the world's questions. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. The price is paid. Hallelujah. Jesus has done what I could not do. It's massive. It's wonderful. Jesus begins this main course by telling us, look, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So let's read on. You've got basically two points this morning in your rich main course. The first one is Jesus fulfills. The second one is Jesus goes deeper. So let's, let's read on in Matthew chapter 5. Um, I'll, I'll pick it up uh, at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus saying here? Verse 20, he's saying that your righteousness in Jesus as a Christian exceeds that as the Pharisees. You're like, what? How is that possible? How can messed up me, with with all my failures and all of my mess, be better and greater than the holy men of Pharisees, scribes, the holy men of Israel? Here's how. 
Because the Pharisees focused on the external, but Christians in Christ, we have a righteousness that is focused on the internal. Jesus' righteousness is in our hearts. And the Lord looks at the heart. You see, the prophets in the Old Testament, they saw a new heart righteousness coming. They saw that the messianic age would be marked by a heart righteousness. This is Jeremiah 31. I will put my law inside of them. I will write it upon their hearts. Ezekiel 36, verse 27, the Lord speaking that he will put his spirit within you and cause you to walk in God's ways. You see, as a believer, there's something beautiful that takes place when you're born again, when you become a Christian, because the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you and God's law is written on your heart and God's righteousness is given unto you. That's how your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees are about the external conformity. But in Christ, it's about the righteousness we receive from Jesus. And this is beautiful. Jesus is flipping this on its head. He's saying, look, there's something deeper going on here. It's about being born again. It's about a change of heart. It's about acceptance for what Jesus has done for you on that cross. So as a believer, as a Christian, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, then your righteousness is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, this is where we're going to go deeper and practical because Jesus then spends the rest of Matthew 5 showing us what a deeper heart righteousness looks like. This is why the Sermon on the Mount is so practical. He's giving us kind of like the daily outworking of that heart righteousness. And Jesus says time and time again in each of the paragraphs, in many of your Bibles, it will be broken down into paragraphs. And Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, now, just to make one important clarification, Jesus is not contradicting the law of the Old Testament because, remember, he came to fulfill that. No, no, what he is doing is he is challenging the distractions and the distortions and the lies of the Pharisees and the scribes. And let me tell you this, many of those lies and many of those distortions are still around us today. Because what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing was they were making the challenge of following God, the challenge of keeping the law as easy as possible. They were making it manageable. They were making the demands less. They were making more permissible. And they were just saying to people, we'll get around it. We'll make a way around the law. We'll make a way round that difficult commandment. We'll make it as easy as possible for you. Sound familiar? For me, that sounds like much of the Western church in particular in 2021. We'll make Christianity following Jesus as easy as possible, as palatable as possible, as least demanding as possible. But Jesus flips it on the head. And Jesus says, with me, you go deep. With me, I will challenge you. 
With me, I want you to live as salt and light. I want you to live as different, as set apart, as holy from the world that you are living in. So we're going to get practical and go through most of the rest of chapter 5. And as we do, and it'll pra- you know, we're going to read the scripture, it's so practical, Jesus' teachings. I want you to hear two things as we go through it. One, in the challenge, there is such richness and such beauty to be held in the deep challenge that Jesus brings. And secondly, in the challenge, in the gap, the Holy Spirit comes to help us to do what humanly we find so difficult. So let's start by picking up Jesus' teaching, which flows straight on in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You see, here's a perfect example. The scribes and the Pharisees were focusing on the sixth commandment in the Ten Commandments, do not murder. And they were restricting it to the only thing that you cannot do is actually to kill another human being. The only thing that you cannot do is take another's life. Basically, all else is permissible. You can be horrible. You can, you can be conniving. You can get at someone. You can even beat them up through paying someone off. You can do all those things as long as you don't actually bodily murder them. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes were saying. They were restricting it just to that narrow act of murder and making everything else under the sun pretty much permissible. But Jesus flips it. Verse 22, listen to what he says. But I say to you, so listen to what I am saying. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is making it much wider. He's saying that actually it matters what you think and it matters what you say. Your words, your insults, they matter. And basically, if you wish someone dead in your mind, that's the same as committing the act of murder. This is Jesus taking it way deeper than the Pharisees with their simple kind of restricted definition of the act of murder. Jesus is saying we're called to be different. And then he gives us some examples. He gives us an example from church and an example from the courts. Let's let's read them. So here he goes, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, you're coming to the temple, you're coming to church, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Two examples from church, from the courts. 
Very simple. You don't really need me to explain them. Jesus is saying, look, when you go to church, check that you have reconciled with brothers, with sisters in Christ. If there's an argument you've had, go and deal with it. Don't wait. Don't wait till after the service. Don't wait till five weeks down the line. Do it now. If you're in court, if there's a grievance with another, whatever that may be, go and pay the debt. Go and deal with the grievance before you go to the judge. Deal with it early. Deal with it before. The basic lesson in both of those two examples from church and from the world is to act, is to be proactive, is to not delay, to apologize, to pay the debt, to go and make the first move. Now, listen, this is deeply challenging, and we haven't got time to unpack it all in great depths. You could maybe do that in community groups. But listen, the point is, Jesus is raising the bar massively. And he is saying, look, this is what I want you to live like. This is how, as believers in Christ, you are called to live. This is a deep challenge, but there's a blessing there's a blessing in living like this, and there's a need for the Holy Spirit because naturally you cannot do this. Let's carry on. What's Jesus' next kind of challenge of how we are to practically live? Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now again, the scribes and the Pharisees had made everything about just the act of adultery. They limited the commandment, the seventh commandment, just to the very act of adultery. There's all kinds of stories about scribes and Pharisees at this time getting away with all kinds of things because, well, it's not adultery. Getting away with all kinds of things, but it's not the act of adultery. And you see, the narrow definition of sexual sin and the broad definition of sexual purity meant that pretty much anything goes. But what does Jesus say in verse 28? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. Jesus, again, he's going deep. He's raising the bar. He's saying the lustful looks of your eyes, the lingering of your hearts and your minds, it matters. Jesus is saying, look, all forms here of sexual immorality outside of a marriage between a man and a woman are wrong. He's saying with murder that your words are murder. And he's saying with adultery, what you think about in your hearts and your minds is adulterous. Again, he's practical. What does he say? Verse 29. If you're...
Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> so Jesus is being very practical here with his, with his advice. It's, it's very dramatic. It's very deep what he is saying. He's making this point by saying, look, there needs to be ruthless self-denial. There needs to be a putting to death of those sinful urges. There needs to be a not lingering but looking away. There needs to be not taking that next step or third step or fourth step, but stopping and going in the opposite direction. Someone once said, deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of the imagination. I.e., for most big acts of sin, it starts in our minds, it starts in our hearts, it leads to a hundred, if not a thousand different decisions before it gets to the big act of shame. Adultery begins with a thought, it begins with a look. And again, Jesus is challenging us. This is deeply challenging. This is, is deeply kind of raising the bar and saying, Jesus, man, this is difficult what you are saying. But again, Jesus is challenging us to be salt and light. He's challenging us to be set apart. He's saying the bar is high. He's saying there's richness in the depth of discipleship. And in the gap, there is the Holy Spirit to help us to live this way. Okay, what does Jesus go on to next? He says this, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, let me just give a quick uh, thing here to say that it's difficult in just a couple of minutes to do full justice to the subject of divorce. It's complex and controversial. Jesus actually talks about it in greater detail in Matthew chapter 19. But again, the scribes and the Pharisees were looking for almost every opportunity, any trivial offense to get out of a marriage covenant. They were looking for loophole after loophole to find a way of getting out of marriage covenant. And the Pharisees basically viewed divorce lightly. They viewed it as just a way of life, whereas Jesus took it incredibly seriously. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, there's not the space and the time to get into everything in the great detail, but Jesus is saying, look, the only grounds here for a divorce is a breaking of the seventh commandment, is of adultery. I believe also there's, if women, a woman is in a marriage which is abuseful and, and, and just, just wrong, then, then, of course, get out of that marriage and get out of that situation. But Jesus is telling us here again, look, I look at things differently. I look at divorce seriously and I look at marriage incredibly seriously. The scribes and the Pharisees said we take marriage lightly and we take divorce lightly. Jesus again is upping the bar and making things deep. He's saying a marriage that is a deep godly marriage has peacemakers, mercifulness, all written into the marriage relationship. It's a challenge. 
husband and wife living together as God's covenant is a challenge. It needs the Holy Spirit there to help them. Final thing that Jesus then goes on to that we're going to look at. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. The scribes and the Pharisees, yet again, were looking for loopholes in what they said. They were looking that unless they said the Lord's name, they could get away with anything. I, they could make a promise. They could say to someone that it would be X or it would be Y. And if they didn't use the name Yahweh, then what they said didn't really carry any credence. They were looking for a loophole. They were looking for a way out. And Jesus again says, this formula, this way of doing things is artificial. He says this, he says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus is saying very simply, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Be a people of the word. Don't look to say, well, if I swore by this or I swore by that, it's true. But if I didn't, then I can get away with it. Don't look for loopholes. Be a trustworthy man or woman of God. Be someone who commits to their word, who stays to their word. Be honest and be trustworthy. Now, each of these paragraphs could be unpacked over a whole message, but the principle in each one is exactly the same. Jesus is challenging us, and he was challenging the crowds, saying, look, as a follower of Christ, the bar is high. As a follower of Christ, there is depth and richness in following me. You will need the Holy Spirit's help to do what naturally you cannot do. And in these areas, the areas of kind of our words, the areas of our thoughts, the areas of our relationships, the, earlier, the areas of our friendships, all those different areas, you are called to a higher standard. You are called to live differently. And in doing that, there is a richness and a beauty beyond compare. And in doing that, you are not alone. You have the Holy Spirit to help you. So let me conclude. Let me bring all the ground that we've covered today together. All is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The law, the prophets, the Old Testament, everything is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When Jesus said on that cross, it is finished, his mission was accomplished. It's the first thing we want to hold to do today. Jesus has fulfilled it all. The second thing is that with that fulfillment of the law and the prophets, Jesus calls us to a deeper way of living. He sets the bar high. He challenges us to live as salt and light and to live a different way of living. 
And it's not about externals. It's about the internals. It's about being born again. It's about being changed from the inside out. So here's my challenge to you, to each one of you today. We're called to live like Jesus. We're called to live like Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. That is a huge challenge. Remember what I said at the beginning, that the one person who who followed and personified and lived out the Sermons on the Mount was Jesus himself. We're called to live like Jesus. And as we do, we will find a richness and a beauty in following him that we will find nowhere else. A richness in the following of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, who has fulfilled every dot and every T to the law and prophecies to completion. Now, that challenge is hard. That challenge is seemingly impossible. My thoughts, my my trustworthiness, my words, it, it seems impossible. But thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling inside of us that helps us 